Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Vincent, welcome to the War Room. Welcome to you. <laughs> okay. You are somewhat of a living legend, I suppose. Um, you were a World War II veteran. Um, you fought at Bastogne. Yes, sir. How did you get to Bastogne? <laughs> um, they put on the barrack lights about uh, 4 o'clock in the morning. And uh, this is December 17th now. And uh, a big sergeant comes out and starts hollering, all right, everybody, uh, pack it up. We're moving. We're, we're moving up to the front. And we said, Sergeant, you're crazy. The ground's frozen. It's December. We'll all break our legs. He said, you're not jumping. You're going up in trucks. And all we could think of with all our airborne training, all the, the jumps on it, I'm going to make my first jump off the back of a truck. But uh, the subsequent events there, we understood. Uh, there was an emergency, and, uh, you know, the officer knew about it, but we enlisted men knew nothing. All we knew was that we were packed like sardines in, a, in these open trucks called portals. And for a day and a night, we drove in freezing weather without the winter clothes and so on from Camp Montmelon in France to Bastogne. Was Bastogne your first battle? Yes, sir, it was. And so you're part of the 101st, and then you were in the company. H Company, 501 Regiment. And so for those who are who are thinking, um, you have the most popular of the 101st, I guess, is Easy Company. So you're one of those companies alongside Easy. No, uh, the 501 was the an attached unit. The original 101st Airborne Division had 502, 506, and a 327 gliders. The 501, which was the original jumpers, uh, was only a regiment. And it was attached to the 101st, and, and uh, any commander knows the, the relationship with the uh, attached outfits is that uh, you save your men and send the attached outfit for any of the, which <laughs> the result was uh, we saw more combat and, of course, suffered more casualties than the rest of the division. And so... By the time we get to Bastogne, obviously the war has been going on for a little while. Um, had you been training? Did you join later on? Uh, what? How did you get Bastogne? Well, uh, we have to back up to 1943 when I turned 18 and uh, was uh, drafted into the war. And the subsequent training for infantry uh an, an accidental not accidental but uh i was assigned to an infantry outfit the 87th uh, infantry at uh, fort jackson south carolina and one day they put on a demonstration 
and the uh, airborne put on the demonstration and uh, asked for a few volunteers. And uh, I was only too happy to uh, volunteer for that because it looked like my division was never going to get over into the fight. And so uh, back to Fort Benning, airborne training, and then uh, sent immediately uh, to uh, France. And uh, the division was in bad shape. It had just come out of 72 days in, in uh, uh, Holland, in uh, 72 days of combat. And uh, it had lost 3,000 men. It, it had to leave half of its equipment. They were almost surrounded. You know about the market garden disaster. Mm -hmm. And um, it was supposed to get 90 days of uh, rest, rehabilitation, replacements. And uh, the, the uh, third week that I was there, that scene that I described before on December the 17th, uh, in the middle of the night, being woken up and told that we're going up into combat. Now, by the way, uh, later on, they told us what the figure was, but 10% uh, of those of us going to Bastogne were unarmed. I was a machine gunner without a machine gun. Mm. I... Uh, I heard from all over the barracks, Sergeant, I don't have a helmet. I don't have a rifle. I don't have, uh, you, you know, it, it was a surprise, I guess, to everybody. I, I can't understand how British intelligence and American intelligence didn't pick up the fact that uh, Hitler had saved up 25 divisions and was going to try to change the war by uh, capturing Antwerp, uh, Taking that was our port of entry. All the supplies were coming out of there, and, and uh, would have separated the British and Canadian armies in the north from the uh, American armies in the south, and changed the war. And so, uh, <laughs> our, our division commander at that time was in the states making speeches. The deputy commander was in England making speeches. The only commander on the base at, at that time was uh, General McAuliffe, uh, he was the artillery commander. But the emergency was such that uh, they couldn't wait for anybody to get back from any place. They just sent us up, uh, come as you are. And so the trucks I was telling you about, uh, and, and you know, what? It, later on we find out all this stuff. We don't know anything. All we know is we're going up, that, that there's been a breakthrough someplace and we're going up to uh, do something about it. And uh, as I said, when we got to Bastogne, 10% of us were unarmed, you know, especially the replacements. And uh, we get to Bastogne uh, and, and the uh, lieutenant says, all right, uh, five yards apart and watch out for snipers. And we said, what the hell am I supposed to do? All I've got is a trench knife. Uh, he said, uh, stop bitching, Speranza. And he pulls out his 45 and shows me the back of his 45, the bottom. It's empty. 
he's going into combat with a uh, an MT-45. Uh, by the way, I, I don't have uh, your uh, picture anymore. I, I just got a black sign that says red. Okay, now I got it. And and um, <clears throat> he said, we'll see what we can do. Maybe get you a machine gun off one of the disabled tanks or something. But again, the, the story was that uh, going into Bastogne, 10% of us in, in, in my outfit were unarmed. What saved us was the Germans had destroyed four American divisions in the Ardennes on their way in. On December 16th, when they first started the attack, they hit the Ardennes line and the 4th, 28th, 128th and the 9th Armored were uh, just destroyed as fighting units. And so the, um, the stragglers were ordered to the rear and to the rear they had to go through Bastogne. So we were coming in, they were going out, and we just went up to them and said, hey, buddy, listen, you're going back, you know, you don't need, took the rifle right off his shoulder, uh, got any grenades, and we put our hands in their pocket. By the way, these guys were dazed, they looked like they were in a stupor. They kept telling, yelling at us, don't go up there, don't go up there, they're going to kill you, there's a million of them. We said, yeah, yeah, well, uh, let me have your rifle anyway. I saw a guy with a nice light 30. And I said, um, oh, that looks so heavy. Let me help you carry it. You're tired. And he had uh, two belts of ammunition. So at least for the first fight, I had a light 30 with uh, two belts of ammunition. And of course, I also took a, uh, a rifle and, and a bandolier of ammunition carrying them both and uh, you you know that two belts of ammunition the first five minutes of any fight you're out of ammo and uh, and so we uh, uh, took another weapon beside and uh, this was December 17th now we're it's, just, it's the 18th we drove the, the night of the 17th and uh, it's the 18th, and we had gotten there one day before the Germans, just enough time to dig in, set up a defense perimeter, and uh, we were ready, as ready as we could be, uh, for the first German attack. So... You're thrown into Bastogne. When did you think your first battle was going to be? We had heard uh, that uh, there was a million Germans coming at us. Uh, we were 12,000 men in that town, and, and there was 156,000 German troops with a thousand, over a thousand of their new tanks, the Mark IVs and the Tiger Royals. And uh, we had one regiment, one battalion of the 10th Armored Division with 73 tanks. And we had uh, one uh, uh, battalion of the 705 tank destroyers with, uh, fortunately, they had the new 75 millimeter anti-tank gun. That was brand new then. And 
uh, powerful weapon. Before that, they were using 37 millimeter guns. At any rate, uh, for the first attack, we were ready. And uh, personally, uh, if that's what you want to hear, my first combat experience, uh, the night before they had uh, told us to dig a hole in the ground, you know, the officers pointed out where we should dig in. And uh, we had had no food or water since we got off the trucks. And we were half dead when we started digging the hole. And, you know, the ground was frozen. And the, the shovel bounced back in your face as you hit it and hit it. And uh, when the ground, uh, when you get through the frozen part, then there's the roots of the tree, the ardens and so on. And, you know, machine gunners got to dig a two-man hole. And, and uh, it, it took us almost four hours to, uh, to finally get a hole dug. And as soon as we dropped into it, exhausted, the sergeant comes out, hey, all right, uh, we're moving out. We got to go dig in over there. And, uh, <laughs> okay, so you drag your stuff and you go dig another hole and, you you know, you're even though you're young and strong, then uh, there's only so much you can do. After we dug that hole, and, and that, that was only a half-baked one, all right, we're moving out. We got to dig in in another place. And we just, you know, we, we were gone. We just scraped the snow on the side, lay on the ground, held it in position to what we could do later. That morning, it's absolutely quiet. And and uh, the the fog is all the way down to the ground. You can't You can't see anything. You can't see, you know, 15, 20 yards in front of you. And uh, as, as daylight comes on, the fog starts to lift, just like a, a, a curtain, you know, all at once, the fog is moving up so that we can see under it. And uh, the place is absolutely silent. And uh, as, as the fog gets high enough, for us to see the, the, the field in front of us and the woods and so on. Uh, we, we know that, you know, boy, uh, uh, they must be a little cocky about this. Uh, this is an open field in front of us and, you know, machine gun is delight. Um, are they going to really attack over them? Of course, they didn't know the 101st Airborne Division was there. They... Uh, their intelligence put us 130 miles down there in, in France. And they thought they were going to romp through just like they did uh, the, those four divisions on the Ardennes line. So they, uh, all of a sudden you hear the noise and the whole world explodes. All kinds of artillery and mortars and, and the sergeant told them, keep your heads down, keep your heads down. And uh, of course, we didn't need much urging there. All, all you could do is stick your head down in a, as deep as you could into your foxhole. You curse yourself and not digging it deeper. And uh, a sustained artillery attack, which is supposed to destroy the front line. And four tanks, but where I was, you know, at, right outside there in Mont, uh, 
four tanks pop out of the woods and uh, start up the slope. The lieutenant told us to keep uh, set outside for 400 yards. That's where the ground started to slope up. He wanted to catch him on the way up. But uh, four tanks came up first. And, <laughs> and they, they uh, were supposed to destroy the front line. Of course, when they did it, a foxhole, the guy disappeared, his rifle went flung through the air. But uh, the next command is, let the tanks go by, let the tanks go by. Though, <laughs> though we could do anything about it with a machine gun and a rifle. And so the, uh, the artillery then, which had been plastering the whole front, they're now moved up behind us. They're, they're moving the artillery up front, up, up ahead of the tanks. And uh, the tanks go by and the, the German infantry starts up the field. And the, uh, they were almost romping. They, they had gotten real cocky that they had just destroyed four American divisions. But uh, they got a big surprise when they came up to the front line, what was left of it. And we plastered them. In front of me, it was an open field, and, and they were coming across the open field, uh, following behind the tanks, but they were way behind. And uh, after the tanks went by, we opened up the lieutenant said, now, all right, open up. And and uh, the, the the snow turned red. We, it was it was. Uh, I I wrote a poem about that. May I read uh, the uh, that first day? And it was my first combat, but uh, you know I can never forget it. The poem is called A Kid with a Machine Gun. It was December of 1944, the 18th to be exact, when the hungry, tired soldiers did pour from off the trucks with their packs and told to dig a hole in the ground. And it was cold, cold, cold. The wind blew through their summer clothes and feet froze through and through. But these were paratroopers all and given a job to do. No weather was going to stop these boys. And we waited and waited and waited. We checked and checked and checked our guns. Our fingers were stiff and sore. The enemy was near we knew. Get ready, sight that bore. Put around in the chamber and click it home. And we stamped and stamped and stamped our feet. My fingers are still stiff and sore. The experienced calmly lit a butt and cupped it in their hand. The young kid with the machine gun just hoped that he could stand. They were all giving him the thumbs up. You'll make it, little man. And you force a smile while your mouth runs dry. The fog and mist begin to rise. Daylight comes at last. Stirrings from the other side. Artillery comes whizzing past. Not yet, not yet, 
Not yet, says the lieutenant. Our fingers were sticking to the triggers. And then the sound we dreaded most, the clank of treads and wheel, the 88 guidance to a halt, and the tanks belch red hot steel, and fear begins to clutch the heart. And you shiver a little and blame the cold. The enemy starts across the field, white snow capes frustrate our aim. Lieutenant, goddammit, they're coming on, are we just playing the game? Not yet, not yet, not yet, says he. And the wind blows swirls and swirls of snow. The machine gun kid hears not the din, waiting only for a word or plan. His thoughts exploding again and again. Would the kid become a man? He sets his sights at 400 yards and squints through the peephole. And the figures get larger as they come on and on. Now, now, now the command, hoarsely through the noise. My gun erupts, I grim and shout, and curse, traverse, and curse. My fear is gone, replaced by joy as I watch the figures fall. They turn to lifeless mud, and the snow turns red with blood. Now the enemy falters, stops, and turns back. No victory cries or shouts of glee as we all turn around and view the bodies of our boys lying upon the ground. Oh, the cost, the cost of that day's work lies heavily on the brow. The mighty Airborne 101 is less in numbers now, but we stopped them cold, though odds of seven to one, no Nazi boot ever entered Bastogne. And the machine gun kid had indeed become a man. We the living seek not the glory, only realization of our terrible losses. Save your honor, praise, and glory for those men beneath white crosses. Respectfully submitted this friend. I I I get emotional even talking about it now. It's 78 years ago that. I was that 19-year-old kid with a machine gun. But they, 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 we, we didn't jump for joy. It was a grim satisfaction. Hey, we stopped you. And, and uh, for the rest of that battle, the eight days before Patton got there, not one Nazi boot ever got inside that perimeter, inside the town. And... Uh, took terrible losses but but they they, they attacked they, their frontal attack failed and so the next day they slipped around and and attacked and surrounded the town and they they uh, captured the field hospital they uh, shot the medics and and uh, but they they saved the doctor's lives they sent took five of them to uh, uh, serve in their army. And uh, one doctor and one Belgian nurse escaped and uh, got into the town with us. So that uh, our medical team for that whole battle was one doctor and one nurse and only his own personal equipment. And they had captured, of course, all the beds and blankets and the morphine, the medicine and so on. Um, 
the, the the medical team was a nightmare during that battle. First of all, there was no place to put them. The, every building in the town had been flattened. The, the, the Luftwaffe had come in and bombed us twice, and, and, and uh, the artillery finished the job. Every building was flattened down except the church and the seminary across the street from the church. And uh, they, they had stone walls. You know, they were old buildings with uh, stone. And the only thing we could do is uh, throw the wounded on the floor of the church. And, uh, and then they sent us through the houses to pull down all the drapes, curtains, blankets, uh, whatever we could find in the houses to wrap the wounded in. And by the way, the temperature dropped below zero and, and it, it never went above it during that whole eight days. And, and, and we had not been issued our winter clothes. We just had our summer jackets. And, and uh, the, uh, the doctor had to operate by candlelight from the church and, and uh, only with his own personal interest. Uh, in other words, uh, we, we lost a lot of men who, had they been a decent field hospital, they'd have made it, but uh, that wasn't to be. And then with the freezing weather and, and a lot of guys uh, got trench foot and frozen feet and so on, and they were out of the, the fight. The second day was really a nightmare. And uh, the Germans were making proven attacks all around. Now, strategically, uh, of course, we don't know all of this until later, but what saved us, why they never successfully entered that time, is that McAuliffe, as, as a, an artillery commander, uh, had set up his guns so that they not only fired, aimed at the perimeter all around, but on high enough ground for them to be able to fire across town to the other side, which meant all of the guns could be brought to bear at one spot if necessary. And that's the only things that kept the tanks off us. You, you know that we... <laughs> You're defending a roadblock. You got a machine gun, and the, the, the new German tanks, the bazookas, used to bounce right off. The, the, the uh, you, you're doing okay, holding your own against the German infantry. Then, then two of their tanks show up. Now, what the hell do you do? You, you throw a grenade in frustration, and and, and just bury your head down there. Uh, but now the tanks. After, the, after they had surrounded us, when the tank battles came, McAuliffe was able to blast them all with all these guns. And of course, uh, the ammunition was getting low immediately. Uh, we only went up there with half a load. And in other words, uh, they tried attack after attack, and they were, all, they were met with uh, machine guns, rifles, mortars, but McAuliffe's artillery. And uh, you, you have to say that, uh, oh, and of course the 705 tank destroyers did a good job uh, with their one battalion. Uh, it was a hell of a fight. 
in the in the poem you describe waiting to shoot tension there what was that like in the battle waiting to get the order to fire it's hard to say in the poem the geography of the place the ground sloped down a little bit until about 400 yards out from us and then it sloped up and the lieutenant's idea was to uh, uh, catch him on. He told us, set our sights for 400 yards. And uh, the, the ground right there is where the snow was deeper. And uh, his, his idea, I guess, was wait until uh, they concentrate down at that 400-yard uh, mark and then uh, open up all at once. And of course it worked. It was exactly what he what he wanted. But we're, you know, you're sitting there, you see these guys coming further and further and further, and you're dying. Hey, you want to open up? No, he kept he kept this man. No, wait, 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 wait. And, and you know, you you're dying there because you figure if they're gonna get close enough now to, to use bayonets for God's sake. But um he was uh, he was right, of course. And when they hit the four hundred yard mark, uh, unknown to both sides, there were some barbed wire fences there, and and uh, what lucky I guess uh, they didn't know it. We didn't know it either. But the, when they hit the fences, the, when the first wave hit the fences, they, they stopped, and and uh, not a. You know, a couple of them got around and started shooting at us, but uh, most of them were, were hung up on the fences. The second wave comes up, and the second wave now is trying to help the, these guys get off the fences. And uh, we kept saying, no, 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 no. And uh, when the third wave comes up, now you've got lots of men all over the place. They're, they're, again, machine gunners delight. And... Uh, when we opened up, it was a slaughter. When he finally gave the command to uh, open up the, the pent up, you know, that you're anxious and ready to fight. Okay, now. And uh, they told me, uh, uh, that's when I earned my first nickname, Curse and Traverse Speranza. They said, uh, all you did was swear and curse and curse and curse, and we never heard such cursing in all our lives. I think we, I think you invented some new ones. And he said, "But the beautiful three-second burst, nice three-second burst traverse, three-second burst traverse." He said, "You mowed them down." Bad. By the way, you know, when you're a newcomer into a, an experienced uh, outfit. You are nothing until you prove yourself in combat. Then nobody talks to you. Nobody they have no use for you. You you are nothing until you show that you yeah you're a paratrooper. And and uh, after that, my goodness, when you do prove yourself in combat, you can't find a bunch of guys that uh, uh, are are your really blood brothers. And and. Uh, from there on in, you're taken care of like the the best of the best. At any rate, uh, 
uh, after I proved myself in combat, wow, what a difference in uh, the way everybody else treated you. What was the lowest point or hardest point of Best Town? The first attack. Uh, and and uh, you've got 12,000 guys in there. Now, you know that uh, 10% of see combat. The rest of them were back in doing this and that and the other thing. And uh, we couldn't, uh, we had no gloves and no hats. And, you, you know, you've got to have both your hands to fire a weapon. And you <laughs> and you try to pull it. And, and sometimes you saw the damn thing is coming at you, but you... You you can't get your damn fingers going, uh, and and uh, each day it got worse. In that uh, we're running out of food, we're down to one k ration. The third day we, we were didn't have enough food, and uh, by the way, part of it is that. Uh, they they were sharing the food with the, the 3,000 civilians in there. Uh, the kids anyway, there was a whole bunch of orphan kids in the churches and so And uh, I'm sure that they gave some of our food to them to keep those kids alive. And, and uh, we had uh, just a summer jacket. You... you during the, the combat, you know, you're wriggling, you're warm, you're flushed and so on. But as soon as everything dies down, uh, the wind is blowing and it's snowing and it's below zero. It went down. We didn't know it at the time. They'd tell us later. It went down at 12 below zero, 16 below zero. And one night, the worst night, it was 18 below zero. Everything froze. Even the rifle bolts wouldn't fire with when you fire the one round that's in the chamber. Uh, the, <clears throat> the low point was the 22nd when uh, the Germans came in and asked for our surrender. They, now, I was actually, I was far away from it, but I actually saw a pat, uh, the uh, Germans come in in the Jeep with a white flag, waving a white flag, and and uh, the artillery stopped, and so we were happy to be able to get out of the foxhole and stretch around a little bit and so on. But uh, again, we heard later that uh, he asked uh, for surrender, and McAuliffe told him nuts, and uh, that, that became famous. Uh, in fact, that's what I call my book, Nuts. Uh, and and the artillery was down to two shells per gun per day. Now, the artillery was the only thing that kept us alive because it, it took care of the tanks. Without the artillery, uh, the tanks would have come right in uh, and collapsed the line all, all up and down the, the whole perimeter. But uh, on the 23rd, the sun came out. Now, we were, we were so amazed, you know, from the very beginning, the Germans were flying, but where the hell is our Air Force? We got the biggest Air Force, the best planes, the best pilots, where the hell are we? The Germans, the Luftwaffe came in there twice and bombed us and strafed us and so on. 
where the hell are our planes? What we found out later was that the weather in England was impossible. They couldn't get off the ground. They were all loaded up, ready to supply us. They knew that we were in there with just half rations and half ammunition and so on, but they couldn't, they couldn't get off the ground. Fortunately, on that day that uh, we were really down to the scraping the bottom of the barrel, some guys only had two bullets left. Some guys had one belt. Uh, every night the sergeants used to go around and redistribute the ammunition. Uh, how many clips have you got for that uh, M1? I got three. Give me one. He's only got two. They used to distribute the machine gun. No, you know, a machine gun was effective if he can pump bullets out there. And uh, they told us, uh, don't, uh, MacArthur's down to two, two, uh, two shells per gun per day. And, and uh, it was going to be bad. But um, on the 23rd, you know, it started the 18th. On the 23rd, the sun came out. And that morning, I'll never forget that scene. That morning, six P-47 Thunderbolts came out of the sky and dove. They bombed and strafed all around us, silenced the German artillery, and then 130-something C-47s came in and dropped supplies. And we were just delighted. We were jumping up and down like kids. Yay! Yeah, and then when we saw those supplies come in, we're picturing over the front line guys, especially, uh, you know, and I was in the forward foxhole. Overcoats, gloves, hats, something. There was not one plain load of clothes. They dropped food, ammunition, and, and gasoline. And not one place, you know, we, we couldn't believe it. Don't they know that the frontline guys, especially if they're going to be effective with their weapons, they, they need, if nothing else, one plane or the gloves. We blessed them when they came in. We cursed them when they went out. You stupid asses. And then you uh, fast forward to 2019. I'm in California. And uh, it's uh, a Plains of Fame, a, a big uh, uh, event there in California. And uh, they have a special tent set up for veterans. And uh, those of us who wrote a book were given 15 minutes to discuss your book. And then uh, you, you have autograph, well, you're selling, you're autographing your books. So when it came my turn, I told them the story just the way I told it to you. And when I said, where the hell was our goddamn Air Force? The, 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 the officer who planned that thing must not have known about combat and, and what men need in, in, in that kind of weather. And one guy popped up. Hey, Vince, I was the pilot in the third plane there that day. Uh, I didn't know what we were carrying. Oh, wow. <laughs> I said, well, okay, it's 75 years later, but I, I forgive you. <laughs> Wow. At the same time, by the way, at that place, I met uh, Jimmy Doolittle's uh, 
Yeah, co-pilot. My goodness, what a, what a wonderful thing that was. I heard him talk, talk about the Doolittle raid. The pretty impressive. But uh, getting back to, to the battle there, uh, everything they tried failed. We knocked them off, and the call of artillery stopped the tanks. When our supplies came in, now we're uh, not only holding them off, but we're killing them seven, eight to one. But of course, there's so few of us that they, they were knocking us off too. And uh, it, it just started to get bad. And uh, then we heard uh, Patton was on his way. On the 24th, now that we've been resupplied the 23rd, on the 24th, the Germans, uh, a massive attack uh, and, and uh, more artillery than we've seen. We swore that they had damn railroad guns. They, they didn't. But they had such heavy stuff. And we, uh, even some of the old guys who were in Normandy, they, they hadn't encountered that kind of artillery before. But they decided they were going to blast us off. They, they stopped attacking and just artillery. Bang, bang. And of course, it was uh, effective, but ineffective. It, it, it was ineffective in that it didn't deter us one bit. We had all made up our mind. Listen, you bastard. You're not getting by my foxhole no matter what the hell you do. You're going to have to kill me first and, and I'm going to take 20 of you with me. But, but um, you, you know, the realization, and you've heard this before, battles are not won by who has the most men, the most equipment, the best uh, the weather at the time. It's what's in the heart of the individual soldier. The guy who digs a hole in the ground says, I don't care what you told me. You're not getting by my foxhole. And so we held and we held. And Christmas Day, they made a last desperate attempt. They had these new Katusha rockets. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's uh, four, the eight, two, four, six, yeah, eight, eight tubes. And they fire eight rockets all at once. And, and it, 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 it covers a pattern of so many feet, yard by so many others, so many, and anybody in there is going to get it. Uh, if you're exposed anyway. And then you know, they tried everything they could and it didn't make one bit of difference. And on the 26th, Patton broke through. And he, uh, all we wanted him to do is to get the, he didn't do any fighting up there, but uh, we got our wounded out to uh, hospital, and uh, that was mostly the, the concern. Uh, one good thing that happened when they, when they dropped the supplies, uh, the parachutes were gathered up quickly and brought to the hospital to, and wrapped the guys in, in, in parachutes, which uh, were warmer than. Uh, Curtains that they had been wrapped in, and and, uh, and when when Patton broke through and got our wounded out, and he went back to his fight. We now are ready to go on the defensive, uh, to the offensive. And uh, it, first of all, though, when he broke through, we said, "Oh boy, we're not going to go out." They're going to take us back to some nice warm barracks and uh, 
decent food, warm food, and winter clothes and so on. No, uh, Eisenhower said, you, that's the 101st, you and the 82nd are going to be the spearhead of pushing the Germans all the way back to Berlin. He said, well, thanks a lot, but uh, not not at least a, a few days in a warm place, in a shower, a bath. A lot of people don't realize how important hygiene is, and 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 uh, the, <laughs> the fact that you yourself don't pay attention to it because you got something more serious to pay attention to. We didn't get a bath or shower from December sixteen uh, is when we, we were still at the barracks. December 16th till the end of February. No bath, no fresh underwear, no clothes, nothing. And, and uh, it was uh, in the beginning of February, the, the end of February. Uh, somewhere near the end of February, but one of those army units uh, caught up to us with the, they have trucks, you know, with hot water tanks and so on. They set up a shower and then each guy is given three minutes uh, under the water and, but uh, a clean pair of underwear. Uh, and and uh, <laughs> that's what we realized. We all smelled the same, so nobody noticed it. Once we got to that place and took our clothes off, oh my God, how did we stand each other? But um, we went on the offensive. By January 5th, we were still there, uh, just breaking out of the uh, perimeter. And uh, that's when I got hit. And I, uh, one piece of shrapnel looked like it was under the eye, touching the brain. And so they sent me to a British hospital. They flew me to a British hospital uh, because they didn't have the equipment there. But uh, and and by the way, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't touching a brain. They pulled it out, no trouble. But uh, I, I can't go into all the detail here now. It's, it's all in the book. But uh, you talk about a, a, an adventure, another adventure, a non-lethal one, is that uh, they gave us, uh, when you get out of the hospital, by the way, the next day, my, my friend Joe Willis, my, my best buddy, got hit, and he was in the same hospital, but we didn't know it until we were ready to be discharged, and we ran into each other. But they give you five days of recuperation leave. <laughs> By the way, none of us expected to survive the war. The way we were getting knocked off, uh, you know, uh, and and, uh, we're always in the middle of a damn fight. So we said, listen, uh, in five days, we're going back to the war. We're going to have some do it right now. You, you cannot believe what two conniving GIs did for those five days uh, in, in Edinburgh, Scotland. That's where they let us uh, go for recuperation. 
Uh, as I said, the details are all in the book, but it's absolutely fantastic. And and uh, back to the war. When we got uh, discharged, they told us to report to a replacement depot. Uh, we said to ourselves, like, hell, oh, the replacement depots, they, they don't necessarily send you back to your own outfit. They, they can, the doctors examine you, reevaluate re your wounds, and uh, they can send you home, they can send you to another outfit, they can send you back to a rehabilitation center and so on. We said, like, yeah, we're not, we're not going to go anywhere near there. We just hitched a ride with the 8th Air Force to France. And uh, they told us that the 101st was now up near the Czech border. And so we uh, found a Jeep nobody wanted and uh, drove out to uh, where the outfit was. And we finished the war in, in, with our own outfit. There's, uh, I don't know how much more you want. But but uh, uh, I'm ready for any more questions. Yeah. Briefly, the story about you getting the, uh, the beverage for your friend. Oh, okay. Um, as I said, the second day, uh, they had surrounded us and uh, uh, they inflicted a lot of casualties. And my friend Joe Willis was one of the boys that got hit that day. And uh, they brought him back and threw him on the floor of the church. And my sergeant had sent me back to uh, to uh, get some batteries for the radios or something. And while I was back there, I went to look for my friend. And I see him laid on the floor of the church. It was pitiful, you know, the curtain wrapped around his neck. <laughs> But uh, I said, hey, uh, Joe, hey, how you doing? He said, ah, I got a couple of pieces of shrapnel in my legs. He said, I'll be out of here tomorrow. I said, you'll be out of here tomorrow? He said, yeah, tomorrow, the next day. Don't worry. Tell the guys I'm okay. It's just a couple of pieces of shrapnel in the leg, and I'll be back soon. So I said, well, that's great, Joe. Hurry up. We need you back there. I got to leave. Anything I can do for you before I leave? He said, yeah, go find me something to drink. I said, Joe, where the hell am I going to find you something to drink? We're surrounded and cut off. There are no supplies coming in here. The rest of the town is flattened. He said, go look in the tavern. I said, Joe, the taverns are all bombed to hell. They're flattened. He said, go look anyway. You, you might get lucky. Now, you know, hey, when your foxhole buddy wants a drink, you're going to go find him a drink. So it's snowing hard, not the gentle thing with the wind blowing. Artillery is dropping in all around the church, and I'm flopping down the road looking for a tavern. And the first tavern I went into, uh, all broken glass and nothing. But the second tavern I went into, it still had a bar, and when I pulled on the beer handle, beer came out. And I said, ooh, well, uh, so I looked around for a glass or a 
jar, anything to put the beer in, and there was nothing. So I took off my helmet and I filled it up with beer and I went back to the church and Joe, I got some beer. And he said, holy shit. He sits up and I'm feeding him the beer with the, from the helmet. Hey, give me some of that. Hey, give me some of that. Hey, give me some of that. I was like an old mother cow there feeding all these guys a mouthful of beer. I ran out. Joseph, go get some more. Jesus, thank you. Go get some more. Okay. So I went down, filled up the helmet again. This time when I stepped out to the threshold of the bar, a shell landed nearby, knocked me down, spilled whatever the beer. And uh, but I wasn't hurt. I got up and I went back to the church. But this time, standing in the doorway of the church is the regimental surgeon, uh, doctor, but more important, major Walkman. I'm a private. He said, "What the hell do you think you're doing, soda?" And I said, uh, uh, "Sir, uh, uh, bringing aid and comfort to the wounded." Listen, smart ass, don't you realize I've got chest cases and stomach cases in there? You give them beer, you'll kill them. Yeah, they five you shot. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, sir. And put that helmet on. Man, I put the helmet on beer. You, uh, we were already freezing not to be wet and cold. Uh, but I ran like hell back to the foxhole before he changed his mind. And... Um, I could write another book on the <laughs> the the next antics of the next four hours. My guy is trying to keep me from freezing to death. They're taking all the clothes and eating, squeezing, bitten with a rifle butt. At any rate, it was an incident that happened during the war. Hey, there were a million incidents like that that happened during the war. I forgot all about it. No, sir. Sixty-five years later. When I went back to Bastogne for the first time, you know, I had made up my mind after the war that I was going to forget all that stuff. I became a school teacher. I'm going to do build things instead of destroying people and property. And and uh, I had absolutely no desire to bring back any of the memories of the of the war. But I run into this woman who has uh, an accent when I spoke to her. And I asked her, did I know the French accent? She said, no, Belgique. And I said, oh, Belgium. She said, yes, do you know Belgium? And I said, yeah, bombs, bullets, and snow. That's what I know about Belgium. And she said, oh, you were there during the war? I said, yeah. And she said, uh, and you have not been back? I said, no, I don't want to go back. He said, Monsieur, you must go back. The people of Bastogne have never forgotten the 101st Airborne Division. There are monuments to you all over town. There are Every year uh, on the anniversary, December 17th, all the men and women put on uh, uniforms, American uniforms. They reenact the battle. They have dinners and so on. Your Honor, you, you must go back. Now, my daughter was with me. And I said, no, nah, I don't want to go back. My daughter said, Pop, listen, if nothing else, we should go back one time to the cemeteries where your guys are buried 
and uh, pay our respects to the. And you know that pinched my conscience, and I said, "Well, yeah, okay." That decision changed my whole life. At that time, I was 85 years old and an old man just sitting around waiting to die. My wife had been taken away from me, and and so on. And uh, but that decision to go back changed everything. From an old man, I was 85 years old, and that's 2009. Uh, I flipped to, uh, what am I today? A playboy running around the world, making speeches, fooling around. Uh, uh, I just, uh, I, I, I can only describe my life as, as a beautiful thing right now. And yet I'm 97 years old and still happy to be doing what I'm doing. Okay. Last question for you. My son is 15. He loves World War II history. And he's been excited about this interview, knowing that I was going to do this. What would you say to him, someone who is never going to really get to interact with this period of history it's you're you know he's on the he's too young he can only read about it what do you want him to understand about world war ii he who refuses to learn from the lessons of history is doomed to repeat its mistakes and that's by the way that's that's the mission i'm on right now I, I've only got a couple of years left. I'm 97, and and uh, but uh, when I after I went back and got involved in the veterans thing there, now that's not only is it my mission, it's what take most of my. I go around making speeches and talking to people. Listen, from high, you know, I told you I was a school teacher. Uh, I go back to the schools and I talk to the kids and I'm appalled at how little they know of uh, World War II and its significance. I, I can I can demonstrate it this way. May 8th, May the 7th, we entered Birch's Garden. That's uh, the town at the foot of the mountain where Hitler's eagle's nest is. His, his, and his, uh, and, and uh, May the 7th, um, we the Butcher's Garden was the first time we came to that uh, we we weren't getting shot at. The, the people there had finally agreed. They put uh, white sheets and pillowcases and white uh, stuff out out the windows, indicating that uh, yeah they quit. Uh, so so when we took Butcher's Garden, there was no combat. And but then we all heard that you know Hitler's eagle's nest is up there, and uh, naturally we wanted to go see it. And a bunch of us went up there, and uh, a bomb had hit the place. Everything was scattered all around, so on. And so we're picking up souvenirs and so on, so on, so on. That we got the word. The war's over, May the 8th, we, uh, the, the Germans have finally surrendered and so on and so on. And we, you know, the movies show you everybody jumping, jumping. Uh, all, all we do is thinking back to 
how many of our guys are laying on the ground and uh, but uh, there was like a grim satisfaction all right you bastard you tried but we we frustrated you and so on i looked up on the wall and there was a map three feet by five feet uh, a map of the world color-coded in brown which was germany green was italy and red was japan but in the the cocky bastards had already decided how they were going to divide up the world germany was to get all of europe down to the uh, mediterranean all of the ukraine up to the ural mountains in russia Germany was to get Canada and the United States. Italy was to get Africa and South America. And Japan was to get all of Asia, including Australia. There it was, my friend. If, if anybody ever doubted why that war had to be fought and why that war had to be won, there it was on the wall. Three dictators were going to run the world and 90% of the people were going to be slave labor. Unfortunately, that kind of threat is not over. We beat that one, and for a long time, uh, no, nobody was threatening us. We, we, we were, the, but right now, and you know, in all my speeches, when I talk to the, the troops, the guys uh, uh, that uh, Fort Campbell, Fort Bragg, and uh, listen, boys, pay attention to your training. Your training is what's going to save you in combat. And combat may not be too far away. The, the, the world is still an evil place. There are people out there right now who don't agree with uh, America leading the world in democracy and uh, this kind of freedom. Uh, my friends, freedom is not free. Somebody always has to pay the cost. And, and you young men especially, have got to be prepared to pay that cost if called upon. And I said, uh, you know, you know, you you hate to tell the guys, hey, listen, uh, there's going to be war, and and uh, a lot of you're going to be killed. So, but you you say the the threat is out there. If you're big and strong and powerful, they won't try it. And and uh, I, I tell them to keep themselves informed of what's going on. Education is very important. And, and I think you new generations are being cheated out of the real history of the United States. Uh, there's all these uh, crazy uh, ideas and things floating around in there. But uh, one thing you got to remember, Repeat this message over and over again. Freedom isn't free. You enjoy your life now. You like living in a nice free country where you can do what you please with your life. Well, somebody paid the price for that. And you may be called upon to uh, do the same thing. And uh, don't give me any crap about, oh, you're the greatest generation. Uh, it'll never be... Uh, don't give me that crap. You, you know what we were? A bunch of 18-year-old kids right out of high school who would took our training seriously, got well-trained, went out there and uh, beat some uh, bullies. 
And and uh, if you're ever faced with the same challenges that we were, believe me, you'll do uh, just as good. And and uh, Americans are born with freedom in their hearts, and, and they're going to take on anybody who tries to take it away from them. Uh, so the, the the greatest generation will be repeated again and again, if if ever uh, you're called upon. Just just understand and and be ready. Take your training seriously. Well, Vincent, thank you for your for your service and for your time today on the podcast. You're welcome. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.